You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Christopher Irwin, founder of Rockwater Industries and host of the Come Up podcast. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Thrilled to be here. Awesome. Chris, uh, I wanted to start off with a little bit of a you know, journey through your background. You started your career in finance and M&A. What initially set you out on that path? So I grew up on the East Coast in Jersey and uh, undergrad in Boston. I was an econ and IR major. And like all kids from the East Coast, you think that finance is like the be all and end all of everything. So I was like, I'm going off to Wall Street. That's, that's how I'm going to change the world. And uh, so, yeah, I dove into that. And for the first five years of my career, um, I was working from like 8 a.m. in the morning till 2 a.m. at night, like seven days a week. Totally burned out. Um, but I was really focused on m and capital raising advisory for TMT. I learned an incredible amount from some really smart people, built an incredible network, and I really pushed myself. And I think a lot of people say like, like you want to do the things in life that you want to do. But I think it's also important to experience things that you don't want to do. And I learned from that work. It's like, wow, I have these incredible skill sets, but I now also understand how I want to change where I'm pointed for the rest of my career and uh, the balanced lifestyle and, and career that I want. So yeah, after, after Wall Street, I went to a business school uh, in Chicago at the Kellogg School of Man- Management. And I often say it was the most personally and professionally transformative thing that's ever happened to me. I was doing like the big three switch. So I was, um, afterwards I went into whole, the whole digital video revolution, but I was going from East Coast to the West Coast geography into a completely different industry and a completely different role. And so I needed time to build the network and develop the operating experience through externships and things of that nature. And I also met an incredible network of friends. Because at that point in your life, like I was in school from 28 to 30, you get a sense of like more of who you are. Again, like you feel like you're kind of more pointed in, in the right direction. And you, I just made some very, very meaningful relationships. And yeah, that kicked off my whole career that, that began in LA in uh, 2012 at Big Friend. That's awesome. So you go to get your MBA and, and out of curiosity, why Chicago, why Northwestern? Because look, I grew up in the Tri-State area an hour outside of New York City. I went to undergrad in Boston and I had a feeling that I was headed to the West Coast after school, either LA or SF. And actually SF was the original intention. I totally did a a bait and switch and ended up in LA. So I was like, okay, Chicago is an awesome city, but when's the next time I'm gonna end up here? Like, let's give it a shot. And when I remember when I visited Kellogg driving up Lakeshore, I just had this like special feeling come over, over me that was like, something feels right about this school and this vibe. And I, I was right, like Evanston and Northwestern, like that whole area just bleeds purple, incredible school spirit. It's like the opposite of my undergrad experience. And so also my father is from like the Evanston area. So that's why it felt right. Very cool. So it was a pit stop on your way out West, which you eventually did. So we'll get to that. But I'm curious, you know, while you're completing your MBA, you were yeah. busy, right? You interned at Fandom and Pritzker Group. Um, then you founded this company called Stagecoach, which was a project management platform for film, TV, and commercial productions. You know, yeah. how did you manage to fit all this in while also completing a full-time curriculum? Yeah, you've done your research, James, respect. So they, they often say like in business school, there's like four things you can do and you only have time for three of them. It's like eating, sleeping, networking, and academic work, right? So you just don't sleep, but you're so like buzzed up because you're with this incredible peer set. You're excited about like where you're gonna head into your career after school. So I had a lot, I had a lot of energy. Um, and I think like, look, I realized that I was, a, my skill set was like financial advisory, transaction advisory. I needed, and I wanted to become an operator. So I needed operating experience. That involved like on the weekends, I was going into Chicago Startup Weekend, pitching ideas and learning how to recruit like engineering and product folks to my startup idea, even though I had like no background in it. Um, And then, yeah, I I knew I had to take time going. I did an internship at Pritzker Capital to understand how do you think about investing in these different companies and identifying the KPIs and trends that make sense. 
And then also building companies at school. So I got involved with these classes that one of them I think was called NUvention Web. It would pair up like a couple MBAs with six undergrads who are product and engineering focused. We'd come together in the classroom and spend six months together building products. And so um, I spearheaded one of those teams. And I remember, I think we had a member of OCA Ventures. I think it gave Greenbound, who's, who was at Pritzker and then just went on to another fund. He was on our board and trying to scrounge around for money. So I look at those, yes, they were startups, but we never, we never raised funding. They were more, they were ideas with like alpha versions of product before they actually launched. So fitting that into my academic and networking goings on was, it was, I, I was able to do that. Nice. Well, there's no substitute for that kind of practical experience. So that's awesome to hear that you had a chance to, you know, get that in during grad school. But I noticed you also had kind of another early venture called Drop Social in 2010. So I'm curious where the entrepreneurial streak comes from. Is that something that you grew up with or it's just in your DNA? I mean, what, what kind of drew you towards entrepreneurship? Yeah, I, I like these questions. It reminds me of how I like to interview people on the come up. Um, yeah, so I think about that. I've had this drive in me, this entrepreneurial drive, which I didn't even label as such pretty early on. I think about like my father is a psychologist and he built out a psychology practice in New Jersey dating back like 40 plus years ago. Um, so there was entrepreneurship in the family. My mother is an entrepreneur, but not like till recently. She's in her early 70s and like in her mid 60s, she launched her own business, but wow. that didn't, that didn't manifest her. in my youth, but what yeah, very cool for her. She does, uh, yeah, she has an estate sales business and has a whole team to do that. And she's, awesome. yeah, she's very good at it. Um, so I think, I think also in banking, I realized like I wasn't in control of my destiny, my schedule and who I wanted to build with and who I wanted to advise and spend time with. And so I think part of entre entrepreneurship is the ability to surround yourself with the minds, partners, investors that really excite you to get out of bed every day and that will you forward into building. And um, so I think that that theme really spoke to me. And in, in addition, in between my first and second year, I actually did a project manage, product management internship in SF. And then even before that, before business school, I did another PM internship for one of my banking clients. I saw this young team at Ingrooves, which was a digital, like a digital music distributor, young team doing something really disruptive in music distro, working their asses off, but having a really fun time. And I was like, that vibe seems really cool. And I wanna be, I wanna be part of that. Um, so I think like those are the main drivers for me. Amazing, yeah. And you have these unique experiences, right? As an operator, you know, as someone doing M&A advisory, you know, interning at these kind of early stage companies. So you've kind of been on all sides of the table when it comes to entrepreneurship, so that's cool. Um, yeah. In your experience, what was the hardest part about being a first time founder when you were, you know, trying to, you know, think about how do I recruit people or raise money or build out a product and find product market fit? What for you were the, the most challenging pieces? Yeah, so I really think about like the rubber hit the road when I launched the advisory business now known as Rockwater about four years ago. And I think the biggest challenge was a couple. One was I took a bit of a contrarian approach. A lot of people say like, go build a tech company, go raise a bunch of money, go, go for that billion dollar exit. I realized that was always something that excited me when I was going to the Chicago Startup Week in competitions, when I was building an NUvention web at, at Northwestern. But I realized, I'm like, do I really want that? Is that the lifestyle that I want? And also, where are my skills? I think you need to find a unique intersection point of your skills and your network when you launch a company. And so I went a bit of a contrarian approach and I launched a services business. And I had a lot of friends around me who were like, why do you want to launch advisory? Like, don't you want to go do something exciting in modern media? That's like your recent pedigree and DNA. And I was like, well, I know I'm really good at advisory. And like you said, James, like I've been an investor, an operator, a banker advisor, and I could bring some really interesting perspective to these companies. Mm -hmm. And I was very frustrated in being in like the digital video ecosystem from 2012 to 2017. So many bad events, fire sales, exit, exits, employees not taken care of. And I was like, our industry can be better and I want to help our industry build more sustainably and towards profit versus just a pie in the sky vision. And so I think going against the contrarian grain was hard at first, but then when I like explain this to myself, I was like, yeah, it makes total sense.
Yeah. I think second is like, you know, you enter the world without reliance on a paycheck. I didn't raise money and had, okay, well, I know that I got a salary for me and my like next five or 10 employees. It was like, eat what you kill. And I had to go pitch business like day one, right when I left awesomeness and big frame. So that was scary. And then, then, yeah, the hardest part is like, you're just like building this machine, as I say, while it's like, it's like building a plane while it's falling out of the sky and you have to learn quickly. And so I, I think it was when we made some of the first team hires and that was like, wow, this is a big responsibility. Like these people are looking to us for career guidance, mentorship, and to fight like as a fiduciary to take care of them. And I think we, I think I stepped up to the plate very quickly on that, but that was scary, like right off the bat, but you live and learn, you know? For sure. Well, I love the mission, right? And, and I want to talk about your LA chapter and big frame and awesomeness. So let's get to that. But um, I, I love, you know, like your ambition to say, hey, let's improve the industry. Let's make it better. And in my experience, I've found that the best advisors are those with operational experience, right? Not just the ones sitting around saying, you know, hey, I, I think you should do this or trying to do, you know, um, trend spotting from a distance, but actually people who've gotten their hands dirty, run a business and can give some practical advice or at least ask the right questions to help guide people in the in those directions. So that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Let's, yeah, let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you made your way out to LA and how you got uh, hooked up early on at Big Frame. Yeah, so it's funny. You ask anyone in my grad school program, like I was like the San Francisco guy. Like Irwin's going into technology in San Francisco. He's going to be a PM. Like everyone knows that. It's where he did his internship between his first and second years. I remember visiting my buddy, John Wooter. Shout out to him. He lived in Santa Monica during, during business school. And I just kept flying out to LA to hang out with him. He was a high school buddy. And so also then I slowly started networking. And I was like, wow, there's just like burgeoning technology and media scene. And I think there's a chance to be a big fish in a small pond versus going to like the crazy competition of SF in the Valley. And as I started to increasingly fly out, fly out here, I was like, okay, there's a great network. I also like the lifestyle. I grew up on the beach in Jersey. So like I'm obsessed with the ocean waves, body surfing, all that stuff. And then I just got sold as I started to meet some different companies here. And actually I really give a lot of credit to Pritzker because they had invested early in big frame seed round um, when big frame had also concurrently raised a round of funding from the Google original channels program. I got to know Steve and Sarah and I was like, okay, I don't really know exactly what they're building, but they're building in digital video, lots of tailwinds behind the space. This is going to be huge. And I love like the whole LA vibe. I was like, game on, I'm coming to LA. And that's how I, that's how I decided. Awesome. And hey, I mean, it, it all worked out, right? I mean, Big Frame was one of the earliest digital talent management groups, had a lot of success, um, went on to get acquired by Awesomeness TV, which was then in turn received multiple rounds of investment and acquisition over the years, but was a pioneer kind of in, in this space, right? Digital media at that intersection of kind of Hollywood meets technology, right? The, the, the kind of exciting startup ecosystem that we see here in LA. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny. I remember when I first interviewed at Big Frame, I was invited to the, we were on the National Lampoon building, which was like across from where Sarah Penna lived on Sunset Boulevard. I go in and like Sarah's like heads down on a laptop and there's like Steve Raymond, co-founder, Jason Zemanski, Grant Gibson, like Max Polisar, it's like the whole old like executive crew. And I remember I was like, what is this space? Like, this is just funky. There's like talent coming in and out, like all these different YouTubers. They're asking me all sorts of like weird questions. I remember one of the questions, it's funny, Grant was like, hey, Chris, like, what are your hobbies? I was like, oh, I like to play guitar. He pointed to a guitar in the corner, which I think was like Mystery Guitar Man's guitar. Probably, yeah. And was like, play that, right? Like, are you, are you being truthful? And I, I think I like played a few chords, but I was like so thrown like off guard. Um, but yeah, th I knew though then I was like, this is exciting. This is going to be fun. This is like a cool team. But yeah, that was like, dude, it was off to the races. I joined in late summer 2012. And then actually, um, yeah, we sought to exit and we kicked off a sales process in the end of 2013. And I actually hired my former investment bank and this one banker there named Brian Stengel, who's like still a mentor and partner to me to this day. And yeah, he represented us in our sale to Awesomeness TV. And uh, yeah, that was an exciting moment. Learned a lot, like the ups and downs of that emotional process. I saw it so much as a banker advising companies, but when you are like the part of the company itself and you're like, heart and your fight like a lot of your finances are tied into that it, it was a lot but learned an incredible amount as you said being on the operator side building in the intersection of 
digital video and entertainment and tech. And then going through like what it's like to raise capital, having that market dry up and then heat up again with like the Disney maker acquisition and really proud of what we did there. I don't think we got nearly as exciting a result as like what full screen got with um, AT&T and uh, Otter Media and like Disney and maker, but it was, a, I think it was a great result for the company. And it was also just an incredible network of people that I hold near and dear to my heart to this day that I think have ended up doing a lot of interesting things. For sure. Some phenomenal people who have gone on to do some incredible things, yourself included. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in that point in time, right? That's kind of when I found my way into this whole digital video online you know, media ecosystem. And, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the Disney maker acquisition and later on AT&T, Turing Group, full screen, right? But a lot of these things maybe haven't lived up to the initial promise or, or maybe the acquirers failed to execute on them successfully. And we don't necessarily have to get into specific examples, but I think <laughs> the history of media, I'm interested in like the broader theme, right? That media is bundling and unbundling. There's this fascination uh, with traditional media in what's happening in digital new media. And, um, and yet at the same time, there are these forces of consolidation, audience aggregation, everyone's contending against Google and Facebook and now Amazon kind of uh, gathering up eyeballs and trying to compete for you know, slim resources. Where do we go now, right? Like how has this space evolved over the past decade and, and where do we go from here? Yeah, I, I think the ways to think about it is like everyone always got excited about technology in power, like technology and media. What is that intersection? And I think you have to look at it that technology is part of everything that we do. And uh, I think what media companies have to harness now is how do you use different technologies, different platforms, different intelligence to create a really exciting new way to engage with your end consumer, your audience? How do you create different types of content across all these channels? How do you market more effectively? How do you develop a deeper, more personalized relationship with your listeners, with your viewers? which are exciting pathways to monetization. And I think a lot of like a big theme that Rockwater looks at is the convergence of media, technology and commerce, right? Like you're starting to see media companies buying commerce companies and commerce companies buying media companies, right? You had Hasbro, the famous venerable branded toy manufacturer like by E1, the, the film and TV studio. And then you have the media company like meat eater that goes and acquires First Light, or I think that was just announced over the past week, Food52, a media company, uh, a food-focused media company, just bought, I think, a Danish hard, hard goods manufacturer called Dansk, right? And there's endless examples of that. And then I think something that we'll talk about is we're now also seeing this play out in sports media as well, where a lot of sports books and sports services companies are acquiring media businesses to drive more effective user acquisition and even retention within the sports books applications themselves. So this whole convergence is really exciting, but it's about following your fans to where they are and giving them a better experience with your brand identity. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, you're spending a lot of time in the sports space among others uh, at Rockwater. So I'm curious, you know, why has sports and sports media become so tightly intertwined and what does the future look like in that space? Yeah, so I think there's like a few things that we were tracking that we've been tracking at Rockwater that got us excited, but it's the explosion in live rights. And I think that you just saw like uh, the NFL broker like multi-billion dollar deals with a variety of players, including like Amazon and all the traditional linear networks like um, Viacom, CBS and Warner Media uh, and ESPN and a handful of others. And I think people say like, well, like, okay, linear viewership is is like, is dying, it's falling off a cliff. So like, why would these companies wanna be spending billions of dollars for it? Why does live matter? It's because live is one of the unique elements in our media world that cuts through all the noise and brings together a critical mass of audience together, right? That's very hard to do today. And bringing that together is very exciting for advertisers. But in, in addition to that, I think live also drives more engagement, more tune in and lean in by the consumer. And so you think about like a fast growing sports betting landscape in the US, I think it's forecast to be like 4 billion in 2022 and then over 30 billion like over the next 10 years. And so, but think about sports betting, it's much more exciting and you're gonna wanna be watching a live video feed because if you're doing in-game bets, you wanna know what's going on like every five seconds and how that's embedding your, in, impacting your betting position or maybe new bets that you wanna enter into. So again, the, that's, causing this like massive drive in the value of live rights, 
even by some of these traditional media operators, but clearly like Amazon and other of these like digital first operators see the opportunity and Amazon with its kind of Twitch platform, like that's a no brainer for Thursday night football and more. Yeah, and it feels like mobile has kind of driven the way for a lot of this, or you think about particularly in a sports betting context, okay, well now we have the advent of fantasy football, which has led to fantasy everything, right? March Madness, fantasy baseball on ad infinitum. So now there's more of an investment in me, even if I'm a casual sports fan, because this has become a social online interaction. And now, okay, people are spending real dollars behind their activity in this community with their friends. And so, you know, DraftKings, everyone else kind of comes into this rapidly evolving space and that's driving renewed interest in live rights and then also more sports betting activity across the board. I'm curious, yeah. how do we then make the leap to like new media formats, particularly esports, right? Like what does this mean for online competitive gaming? Yeah, well, I think the traditional sports media is looking a lot of what esports has done and e-gaming and getting a lot of inspiration. I mean, just look at some of the numbers about the esports market. I think last numbers I saw, which are probably already outdated, was that there's over like 600 million esports fans and viewers throughout the world. Um, and I think that what esports has also enabled is like these personalized viewing experiences where like if you're in a, if you're watching uh, like an e-game competition, there's all these different like cam camera angles where you can watch, if you're watching like League of Legends or Call of Duty, you know, there are so many different ways to experience that game in the competition. And I think that's what like the new partnership between the NBA and Microsoft and a lot of what the other sports leagues are trying to figure out is how do we add in personalization and viewing experiences to like the broadcast, which feels so dated and don't cater to the new like younger millennials and generation Z that they need to capture. Yeah. Um, we also think of things that are excited when you think of like personalization, why can you not watch, like if I'm watching maybe an NFL broadcast on CBS, why can I not mute that and then put on my smart speaker and maybe he'll hear like Bill Simmons from The Ringer, or Dave Portnoy from Barstool or another media personality that you like, Pat McAfee, do a unique audio overlay to the game while you're concurrently watching the linear feed. Other examples of personalization, I think makes sense. Look at what like Bohan and Buzzer is doing. So maybe I don't want to watch an entire NBA game, but all of a sudden I see my friends on Twitter saying like, dude, this, this Timberwolves game is crazy. Like it's down to the wire. It's the last like 10 minutes, like tune in. Typically you wouldn't be able to like kind of pay like 99 cents and get access into that like live stream, but Buzzer is now enabling you to do it. So you get a notification from your friends. I want to watch the last quarter. I'm not going to pay 20 bucks for the game. I'm going to pay $1. Like go, again, it speaks to go to what the, where the fans are and how they want to interact with your sport experience and cater to that. If you resist, you will lose out on a lot of money and you will lose out on the fans of tomorrow. That's clever. And it's, it's giving fans what they want, right? Which is already yeah. a better experience. It's incremental revenue because you're finding audience that otherwise probably wouldn't have tuned in to watch this game. And then you're generating additional buzz and excitement around the sport or around the team and everything else. And that fuels the rest of the media engine, right? Driving licensing deals and, you know, consumer products and, you know, everything else that goes into this ecosystem. Yeah, a hundred percent. And like, you know, the technologies that are emerging around this, like, I mean, yeah, we can get into live streaming and audio and some breakouts there, but yeah, so there's a lot going on across the board. For sure. And the personalization element is really cool because as you think about new technologies, whether that's haptic devices, wearables, um, you know, AR, VR, interactive 360 video, like the way you experience a sporting event can be totally different now. We can draw on some of those themes from live streaming, from esports that uh, change the context or the way in which we uh, consume these entertainment experiences. And I think particularly pre-COVID, you know, people had a very traditional idea of what is a live entertainment experience. What does it mean to go to a concert or a festival yeah. or a sports game? But now, you know, we're so used to interacting with content on our phones, laptops, you know, yeah. everything else that I think people will be more comfortable with these hybrid or these virtual experiences, even for big tentpole events like a Super Bowl or Coachella. Yeah, I think there's, you know, around the event, like you said, it's what is the actual live event experience if you're there in person? What is a live experience if you're watching, you know, watching on a linear stream? or even if there's a manifestation of that, like in the metaverse and it's all digitized. But I think another question to start that we all need to start asking ourselves is like, how are you wrapping the whole event experience with content? Like what's leading up to the events? 
what's all the concurrent conversations and streams around the actual event itself. So you might be watching on like Facebook Live or YouTube Live or on a CBS channel, but you're concurrently on Twitter and you're messaging on Discord with some of your friends. And then after the game, like what's the post-game wrap-up and takes that, because it's all about retaining and engaging the customer. And then at the post-game wrap-up, like post-event wrap-up, you're now facilitating and setting up what's the next upcoming event so that you're constantly having this ongoing touch with the with the end user and fan. Yeah. So look, and when you say all that, you're like, wow, you're like a media company, just all that production that you have to do around the events on all different channels. Yeah, it's a lot of work. And so we always recommend focus on the lanes that you know best on the channels that make the most sense for your fans, because maybe Twitter and Instagram makes a lot of sense and Pinterest and YouTube don't or vice versa. Yeah. So you, Again, it's about like have an intimate understanding of who your audience is and program into that. But yeah, it's a lot of work today. <laughs> I love that theme. And I want to pull out the thread a little bit more because, you know, Mark Andreessen has this uh, famous soundbite that, that tech is eating the world, right? So everything is gradually becoming technology. But as you're talking, it occurs to me that more and more brands have to become a media brand, right? If you think about, you know, you already cited Hasbro and Mattel, which are great examples of they've had a toe in the media of water for, for years, yeah. but probably from a distance, right? Oh, we've got great properties. Let's license those to a media company to create, you know, um, some a story based on our IP that helps us sell more toys. The thinking is totally flipped on its head now. If you think about a lot of these new brands that have launched, like an ESL, which is a tournament, they host tournaments for esports, right? Like yeah. they're not in the live events business, they're in the media business. They're creating content around this, you know, temple content, shoulder content. You know, everyone these days needs to be a media brand to some extent. Do you think that, that that's true? Oh, it's 100% true. And this is what got me excited about something I learned at Big Frame and Awesomeness. And then as I went to advisory, the new universal truth for any company is that user acquisition is done through storytelling, whether you're like selling hard physical products or services. And it's just because the, I think a lot of the products are becoming increasingly commodified, right? And so what, what audiences care about and consumers care about is what, are the what is the identity of you as a business? What values does the company stand for? Does your community stand for? And do the leaders and investors stand for? And content is the medium to, to explain those values and to tell your story of why your product is unique and how your community can activate in and around your unique brand identity that gets them excited to stick around for a long term. So it is, we always say media is the new universal truth for any company. Let's talk about some examples. Again, going back to sports, right? We were talking about sports books. So just yet, I think yesterday it was announced that um, Better Collective just bought Action Network, another sports media company for like $240 million. We saw this on our team, and this is something that we've been writing about for a while. We saw all the different activity in 2020 of the major broadcast networks like CBS, like Viacom, like ESPN, partnering with the FanDuel, the DraftKings of the world, and the multitude of others. We said, this is going to go into overdrive in 2021 because of the land grab for the sports gambling market. Because here's the challenge. The actual sports book, right? FanDuel, DraftKings, a multitude of others that are emerging. You now have Caesars, you have WinBets, all that as gambling got legalized since 2018. The actual service itself is pretty standard across the board, right? But it needs to feel different. So that's why Penn Gaming was like, okay, they were a front runner in this and they bought Barstool back in 2020, right? Really, really smart move. And I think if you look at a recent case study, when gambling was legalized and sports books entered the market in Michigan within the first 10 days, Barstool spent around 50% of its overall gross gaming revenues on user acquisition and bonuses. All the rest of the other sports books, when you look at the numbers, spent around 180% uh, of their bonuses and marketing dollars of gross gaming revenue. Why was Penn and Barstool able to do it so much less? Because they had the whole Barstool media machine and their fan obsession with the Barstool brand and all of their sub portfolios. So now like all these sports books are like, we have to figure out a way to tell our story differently to acquire customers. But the next step of that, which we wrote about in our prediction is user acquisition is phase one. Phase two is once the users are in the sportsbook app, having that experience be differentiated so that customers stick around and retain and are loyal. 
right? Again, a, a commoditized offering that needs, that will be enhanced and differentiated through media. We're seeing that with all the digitally native vertical brands as well. Why are Casper and Away and uh, Warby Parker, why they have they all been investing in editorial and audio and video? Again, to tell the stories that are of their companies and to improve user acquisition while traditional social media channels are becoming saturated. And then at the biggest level, Amazon, Walmart, Apple are all aspiring to become media companies, right? It's, it has to become part of the fabric, part of the cultural identity of their brand because that's what's going to drive sales, right? They're trying to get into advertising. They're trying to, you know, uh, keep people in their ecosystem longer, particularly in the Apple example. So yeah. even though, you know, you look at the financials and it's like, why is Apple bleeding money on this TV subscription service, right? It's all a means of keeping people kind of in their environment and aspirationally trying to kind of be this big identity brand for consumers. Yeah, uh, I think that even though the, I think Apple just had like an incredible quarter. Most recently, they just reported earnings. And I think that their their iPhone sales are, yeah, they're still very strong, but over the past few years, like the iPhone growth is stagnating a bit. And so Apple is realizing, okay, well, to bolster growth, we have to think about all the different products that we offer. And I think they're looking outside hardware and into services that are profitable in and of themselves, but more importantly, also complement the hardware business that they have. Their wearable technology, right? Their, their watches, um, their monitoring services, their iPads, their iPhones, and all of that. They're seeing that building an ecosystem of how these products can work together is a greater revenue opportunity, but also, again, creates more retention from their core customer base, too. Yeah, makes sense. Well, let's talk a little bit about live streaming, right? We've hinted at that now a couple of times, and I know it's another area where you're spending a lot of time. What are you seeing in the live streaming space and particularly, I think, at the intersection of live streaming and commerce? Yeah. So let me tell you a story of how we got excited about live streaming. So I remember we started writing about live streaming, I think, early in 2020. And a few team members come to me and they're like, Chris, like, let's talk about some the market size numbers in China. They're like, yeah, okay, so it's forecast in 2020 to be around 135 billion. And last year it was like 65 billion. I was like, that no. I was like, there'd be more people in the US talking about this market if it was that big. Go triple check those numbers and come back to me. They went back and they said, we double, we like triple check these numbers, like these are right. So then I was like blown away. And I'm like, why are more people not talking about this in the US? Why are like the incumbent platforms not launching live stream commerce? Why is there not more investment capital that's flowing into challenger and upstart brands? Why aren't retailers like Nordstrom like, and Walmart trying to figure this out? And we're like, this is gonna change fast. Let's start, a, let's start an industry dialogue about it so that everyone can be better. And the best way that we know how to do that is, yeah, we call in our executives and we have phone calls with them, but we write about it and we podcast about it. So we started writing some of these tentpole pieces. And I think when you start to look at the numbers, I think in 2020 in China, live stream commerce, I think estimates are now that the market was actually around 180 billion plus, beating out the forecast of 135 billion. In the US, I've seen forecasts that currently it's like under 100 million. It's hard to state, there's not a lot of good data collection. I've also seen around a billion, but forecast by 2025 to be, I think in like 25 billion range, right? As big as that. So there's all this headwind. And we started following, like, I think we saw a pop shop live they raised, I think, in the end of last year, like uh, 15 million at 100 million pre-money valuation. And we're like, okay, that came, I think that came from Andreessen. We're gonna see a lot more of this. And so then we started seeing like newness for skincare and Maestro uh, focused on uh, music streaming. And then like whatnot focused on memorabilia and this new auction format and a multitude of others. We saw hundreds of millions of capital start to flow in this space. And we're like, yeah, now it's starting to happen and rightfully so. Um, but I think the question is, what is gonna cause it to break out in the US? And there's some barriers that we particularly see. So in China, you have this kind of like unique verticalized app ecosystems where you have media consumption, peer-to-peer -peer communication, pay payments, all the above that's really necessary to have like the intersection of media and e-commerce happen together. That's all verticalized on a single app like owned by Alibaba or owned by Tencent. In the US here, we don't have like that single operating system. That's kind of, uh, it's disparate that happens across a bunch of different platforms. So I think that adds more friction to the, to the US landscape. Um, I think some other things that need to happen is in China, you're seeing that a lot of these platforms like 
Tmall, Taobao, Pinduoduo, very gamified interactive experiences. When you go and look at the actual platforms in the US, yes, you can go onto a live stream and like you'll see sellers selling into buyers, but it doesn't feel interactive. It's not gamified. Like you go on to Amazon Live, you can start to get a sense of like, okay, are these professional are these professional creators? Are they creating an exciting two-way relationship and like entertainment for the buyer? You don't really feel that. You're not feeling the kind of like the gamified features that get you to really like tune in and engage like you do in China. And then I think there's also a couple of other challenges, a real at, like lack of product that's in the US. Um, in China, you have the key opinion leaders, the equivalent of influencers here. They're going live like 300 times a year for eight hours a day and featuring a new product in their live stream, like almost like every five to 10 minutes. That product comes from the fact that a lot of brands and retailers are engaged in live stream shopping in China. And the big key opinion, key opinion leaders have these major MCNs that are behind them that are giving them and curating this verified product. You don't have that here. A lot of the influencers in the US might have like their own merch line um, or maybe like a handful of SKUs. That's not enough to create this cultivating frequency of experience with audiences that want to consume live stream commerce. That's got, that's got to change. Um, and I think one other, one other key point is we want to see unique different types of IP emerge here that will support this ecosystem. With YouTube, you have like the what's inside or the unboxing formats that have garnered billions of views and billions of dollars of sponsorships. That same format for live stream shopping here, we're starting to see like some like initial seedlings of that, like the card breaks that are happening on whatnot in this, in this unique auction format. But we need, we need more of that to happen here before it becomes really mainstream. Yeah, it's so interesting that there are these, you know, these friction points that cause these differences between you know, the Eastern and the Western markets. And I think particularly the fact that in the US, the notion of an influencer is someone who might do affiliate marketing or branded content on someone's behalf. But oftentimes, a lot of influencers are trying to build their own brand and launch their own custom branded products, which is yeah. in contrast to what you see in China and other markets, which is, hey, I'm going to curate a selection of the favorite products that I've tried or these new products that are being released, and I'll give you my opinion on them during a stream. But you know, it's not necessarily about the KOL, it's about, you know, featuring and providing commentary on this stream of products that they're going to showcase over the course of an eight hour broadcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then, you know, I think of like, you know, there are some companies that I think are doing this well, when you think of the things that need to happen, like look at what Aaron Levant and the network team are doing. Exactly. They're doing, they're providing audiences what they want, which is unique product experiences where they're doing like different collaborations with different street artists, et cetera. And then they're giving them like exclusive discounts to those products that's happening in the moment. And then they're wrapping that around with really cool content and even doing these event experiences, like both virtual events and then like in real life events as well, which Aaron is a genius at doing. That's his background. And he also was like one of the early founders of ComplexCon. So um, I think that's cool. I think you also, yeah, you want to see like vertical specialization. I think newness getting into beauty and skincare is smart. And again, like whatnot with the auction based format is cool. But I think, yeah, you're starting to see like YouTube and Walmart and like the big incumbent social media platforms. So like, yeah, YouTube and TikTok and Instagram, they're moving into the space. They're going to do well because they have the existing audience. And the big retailers that have a lot of the product relationships and where customers are accustomed to going and transacting on their platforms, like they're going to do well. But we also think that there's incredible like niche vertical opportunities that can easily be billions of dollars of opportunity. And we're excited to see like kind of where that happens. So I think as more investor capital flows into the space, that will be exciting. And I think that you're going to see some of the more cultural norms in the U.S. start to change around this as well. Awesome. Very good. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about audio. So I want to you know, hear about your experience as a podcaster, as someone who listens to a lot of podcasts, thinking about that space. Also, we've got this whole you know, rush into the, the live social audio space at the moment. You've got, you know, technology enabled opportunities with smart speakers and other types of smart devices, smart assistants. Yeah. Why audio and, and why are you guys so excited about it at Rockwater? Yeah. So I got into audio funny, like a good friend of mine who's actually a client is this guy, Adam Sachs from Team Coco. So he was one of the early movers into audio where he became, he joined as the COO of Midroll Media and then became the CEO. 
And I remember him calling me when I was at Big Frame and Awesomeness. He's like, yo, check out this like podcasting thing. It's huge. Like, would you want to come join our team? There's some cool stuff happening. I was like, I'm in the digital video world, but like, this is cool. So I remember this was like five, seven years ago, but totally piqued my interest about podcasting. Like, I just love the intimate nature of the medium. And then, yeah, like, look at the stats now, like how fast audio has grown, where I think in the most recent Edison research, infinite dial report, over the past year, like over 15, 57% of US consumers have listened to a podcast in the past month. That's over 47%. The podcast advertising market has grown incredibly. I think it's forecast to be over a billion this year and it's growing very, very quickly. And it's just where, like, it's where new fandoms and audiences of all the media platforms wanna be. The consumption is just growing. So if you ignore that, that's just, that's not a good look if you're trying to drive more engagement on platform, like if you're a Facebook or if you're a Slack. So the emergence of live and social audio, right? Like Clubhouse has been all the craze, but then you start to see, okay, Facebook made a big announcement a couple of weeks ago, Slack, LinkedIn, Twitter spaces, like all these endless announcements, even like Mark Cuban behind Fireside, there's Stereo Gum, there's a multitude of others. It just goes on and on and on. Yeah. On and on and on. So then I think the question starts to become, well, like what is the pathway to success? And I think one of the challenges that Clubhouse has is, well, like, what is your brand identity? Again, right, going back to our earlier conversation, what do you stand for? And so I think in the beginning, it was like Clubhouse can be everything because these other social audio platforms haven't emerged. But now that's changing rapidly. Facebook is your friends and family. LinkedIn is your professional network. Slack is like your colleagues and your business partners, right? Locker room is your, is your, sports, uh, your sports network. So I think Clubhouse needs to figure out its identity. Um, and I think, you know, they just did a partnership with the NFL around draft day. I think that's exciting, but I think there's more work to be done there. So I think for, like the- For me, up? I'm getting like deja vu to South by Southwest, whatever it was, 2015, where it feels like, you know, Meerkat and Periscope, all this enthusiasm around live streaming. And of course that kind of came and went. And now we see this resurgence of live. Is audio here to stay? Is this gonna be an enduring feature of platforms where it's just table stakes? Everyone now has short form looping video, everyone has stories, everyone's gonna have live audio. Yeah. And, and there's like kind of a, a, a fractured ecosystem where there's a few winners. Uh, like what do you predict there? Yeah, so I think it's gonna be both a feature for the major like major media companies and other, and other platforms that it's, you have to provide this feature as a way to engage your audience because it's something that they want. And I think that there's going to be some specialized like niche opportunities as well. But like, think if you're like, if you're a Facebook or you're a Twitter, like, what do you want? You want more time on platform. You want your customers being within your like walled garden and within your world so that you can drive um, more value for your advertising partners. So obviously made sense for, for Facebook to launch what they did. Um, but yeah, I don't necessarily see it as just like, oh, it's just a feature. It's not, it can't be its own standalone company. I think like the opportunity for, for Clubhouse is find your lane. What is an underserved part of both creators as well as consumers and give them unique content and unique experience? Because I think there's going to be some parts of like live and social audio that's going to be like must-haves for all, right? It's got to be have like seamless creator tools. You got to be able to also do not only live, but like on-demand recording so that you can publish you an RSS feed thereafter. But in each vertical niche and fandom, there's unique needs and you have to build around that. It's the same thing that we're happening in live stream commerce. Like newness has to build new moderation features around beauty because they've noticed that there's a lot of toxic conversation around the beauty vertical. That's different than some of the gamification that WhatNOS is doing around memorabilia and collectibles. So I think the same thing as, as Clubhouse and other challenger brands figure out like, what is your brand identity? Who are your fans? How can you give them unique features and tools that stand out? Yeah. Other must-haves include like creator monetization and, and a few other things. But that's, we think there's going to be the incumbents will grab a lot of the mature, majority listener share, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, SiriusXM, handful of others. But there will be these challenger brands that will build meaningful billion-dollar businesses as well. Yeah. I think you're right. I think the people that were originally attracted to Clubhouse, part of it was the exclusivity. Okay, it's something new. It's hard to get into. And all of a sudden, there were these zeitgeist cultural moments. Okay, you can listen to Elon Musk drill the uh, Robinhood CEO on the GameStop hype, yeah. right? Here, Mark Zuckerberg's first kind of uh, appearance on Clubhouse. Like clearly, there was kind of this enthusiasm around the, the product initially. 
but the asynchronous, uh, excuse me, the, the synchronous nature of the product today might be a limitation long-term. Like they're gonna have to have recorded options, which of course Hotline and some of these other competitors are experimenting with. Um, yeah. Fireside famously is kind of now pursuing a very tightly curated kind of whitelisted phenomenon of, okay, we're going to have thought leaders and experts and you know, we're gonna kind of make sure there's a, a clear standard of who is able to at least broadcast on the platform. Um, so I think there's some lessons to be learned here, given social audio is still new. We're going to see experimentation with a lot of these different formats and approaches, and ultimately we'll have some winners and probably a lot of losers and everyone ultimately ending up with audio. Yeah. It's very early days, just like digital video back in the day where there's a, like we described, like there's a lot of kind of like bad exits and situations that happen, but because we're all figuring it out, this stuff takes time, right? But I do believe that people are going to figure it out probably sooner rather than later because the, the media evolution cycles are now so much more rapid. So there'll be more capital flowing into the space, faster trial and error, iteration, testing. And uh, I think we'll come out on the right side of it in the next couple of years. We'll see. I think so too. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the digital media space broadly, you've touched on a lot of themes already, but if you were you know, going to pull out your crystal ball, what would they be? Yeah. Uh, maybe it's like it's good to talk about within some of these lanes. So like in live streaming, I think you're seeing, here's one prediction. A lot of ambitious and upstart brands are going to want to figure out live streaming for them because they have less to lose. But the major brands think of like the Procter & Gamble's, the L'Oreal's, the Unilever's of the world. They're going to be fast followers that will probably enter the space in late 22, maybe early 2023. And that's just going to blow this ecosystem wide open with the whole like product influx, it's one prediction. Um, I think in, uh, in sports media, I would say going back to like, we've just seen the beginning of sports books invest in sports media and M&A consolidation. I think there's gonna be an incredibly uh, much more activity in this space through the end of 2021 and in the beginning of next year. I think we've just broken the seal there. Um, and I think like, look, a lot of hype around NFTs and creating like digital rights management from the traditional world into the digital world. I think that there's, that's a permanent theme that's here to stay, but it's, I think the prices you're seeing around the digital assets right now, it's a total bubble because people are just, they're engaged, they wanna learn, they wanna hype. It's gonna be a, see a massive pullback, but I think that that's a really exciting uh, revolution for the creator economy. And that's not going to go away, but it's going to take some years before it's on more stable, stable footing. Are you spending time on NFTs specifically or more broadly crypto, DeFi? What are your thoughts on, on that space? Yeah, personally, I got into crypto, like investing back in 2017 during the hype. Um, and so I, I still maintain my portfolio. My, my younger brother is actually in, uh, in the crypto space. He does content marketing for Chainlink and he was previously at Consensus. So yeah, I kind of got like a bit of a line into that. Um, I think, yeah, like we have written about NFTs at Rockwater. We actually have created a watch list of like, here's the NFT marketplace platforms where you can buy and mint them. We've also written about, we saw a lot of people talking about NFTs, but not actually understanding like, how do you go and actually buy one of these things? So we created a how-to doc that's actually on our blog. So I think it's something for us to track, but we pride ourselves on being moment-driven, but we knowing our focus areas. So I don't want to get too off track with NFTs. I see it as part of the creator economy. So it's like, yeah, we're focused on it, but not overly so. Yeah, it makes sense. And what does the future hold for Rockwater? Yeah, I think we, every single day, we get better at being an advisor to our clients at the intersection of media and commerce. So I think us just continuing to double down there and build, build out our, our client base is a priority. But what gets us also really excited is we're a B2B media organization. So we create an incredible amount of intelligence through our newsletters, our watch list, through our emerging podcast portfolio. We have the come up where we interview next gen founders uh, in the industries that we cover. We're actually launching a microcast because it's like, all right, the come up's like an hour long. Sometimes when like news hits, we wanna give people like bite-sized insights of like, okay, you're an investor, you're a founder, how do you utilize this news to make better decisions? So that's launching over the next couple of weeks. We're just dealing with the technical Apple problem right now. Um, so yeah, we expect like we're going to launch more podcasts and more editorial to better super serve our readership. 
which then also serves our clients as well. So look out, look out for that. We got a new website launching in the, uh, over the next couple of months. Very cool. And one of my favorite questions to ask everyone who comes on the show, and the intention here is to kind of draw on your collective experience right, as an operator, as an advisor, looking at the landscape from a lot of different angles. But if you were going to start a new business in the digital media space today, what would you do? Um, I, I think there's all the businesses that we advise our clients on, we get really excited about, right? Like launching a new sports media business, launching a live stream content channel, creating new IP for the space, launching a, like a digitally native vertical brand. Is there a world in the future where Rockwater becomes like a digital studio of sorts? I think there that does exist. Now, a lot of people talk about that. It's a lot harder to do than people understand. You could burn through capital very quickly. That might be something in our future where we make a few opportunistic bets, call it like maybe a couple every year. But the thing that we're most excited about is the media that we're creating for our, our audiences and better monetizing that um, to diversify our business and get more money in the door so that we can actually launch more editorial, right? That 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 money actually is capital to invest in our in our B2B media brand. That's what I'm excited about and most focused on right now. Very cool. And Chris, where can people find out more about you and more about Rockwater? Uh, yeah, yeah, go check out our website, wearerockwater.com. And you can uh, shoot me an email, chris at wearerockwater.com. Awesome. And I encourage everyone again to check out the podcast, uh, visit the site, you know, subscribe to all the awesome newsletters and stuff that Chris and the team are sharing. A lot of really good intel there. And um, thank you for coming on the show today. I mean, we've known each other. Our, you know, our, our kind of story began during your time, I guess at awesomeness, right? You've just been post yeah. stuff, but it's been super cool to see the evolution of the stuff you're working on over the years and someone you know, whose stuff I always really uh, respect and admire when I see the content you guys put out. So thanks for coming on the show and sharing a little bit more about your journey. James, this was a delight. You are a really good interviewer, so kudos. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.